One Monday a few months ago, I was chatting with my daughter about our weekends. She's 26, so a few people around her are starting to have babies, and she told me she'd been invited to a baby naming. When I asked her how it was, she recounted a snatch of conversation I find difficult to forget. Someone had asked her what she would call a baby if she had one. Her answer, climate change. Not long after, I was speaking with a friend whose eldest son had recently become a dad for the first time. I was still pretty stuck by my own daughter's words, so I wanted to know how his son felt about the world this new child was coming into. I was also curious to find out whether, since having a child, his son had been motivated to get more involved in action around climate change. No, he said, his son was sure that would be a technological solution to climate change, so he wasn't worried about the child's future. And no, he hadn't become involved in any climate-related action. Both of those conversations were pretty confronting for me, but the third one was the most difficult. This time, a very old friend had invited me over for a drink and I found myself sitting next to a property developer. He was telling me about his investments, including a high-end resort on an island in the Pacific. I started to speak about the severe impact of climate change on Pacific islands and asked whether they were taking any measures to adapt to the impact sea level rises would have on the island and the resort. He seemed quite amused by my question and reassured me that he had nothing to worry about. He didn't need to and wasn't planning to do anything at all. His investment was safe. I reflect on these three stories from time to time because they so perfectly illustrate the very different ways that people imagine the future in a climate changing world. What makes them so important to this podcast series is that they so clearly demonstrate that imagination really matters. How my daughter, my friend and the property developer imagine the future is powerfully influencing how they act today and how they're going to act tomorrow. Hi, my name is Danny Selmeyer, and this is a podcast about how people imagine a climate change future and the relationship between the futures we imagine and how we act. In the little vignettes I just shared, we saw how our future imaginaries influence our actions. But as we'll discover over the next five episodes, the relationship between imaginaries and action is a more complicated one. We'll be visiting and spending time with five communities in India and Australia who are facing the impacts climate change is already having on their lives. And there, we will discover that the actions they're taking are also creating different imaginations of the future. As people come together to practically meet the very real challenges of producing food, protecting forests, or facing climate-driven disasters. As they start to discover the power of collective organising, they also start to imagine the future differently. They start to imagine a future where, yes, without a doubt, 
climate change will dramatically affect their lives, is already dramatically affecting their lives, no denying that. But also, they imagine a future where they can collectively make a difference to how life is going to unfold. And once that future imaginary takes hold, they are even more inspired to act to make that difference. Before we get there though, in this introductory episode, we're going to look a little more broadly at climate change and the role of imaginaries. A slightly confusing term, I know, and I'll come back to it shortly. So let's talk a bit about climate change. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need to and likely don't want to hear about the gravity of the climate crisis. So I promise I'll cover just enough to get us onto the same page. The message from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as the IPCC, and pretty much every reputable scientifically informed organisation, including radical lefties like the US military and the International Energy Agency, the IEA, is as clear as it could be. We might break it down like this. First, the massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions, principally caused by burning fossil fuels, has already caused drastic changes in the Earth's climate. And those changes are resulting in effects that are harmful to humans, to the environment, and to other animals. As the year and the decade comes to an end, the country is burning. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded, an apocalypse, a nightmare, and like looking into the gates of hell. Effects like the Australian Black Summer fires that killed an inconceivable three and a quarter billion animals, or the floods in Pakistan that killed more than 1,700 people, washed away villages, and devastated the lives of millions of people. Pakistan calls it a climate-induced humanitarian crisis of epic proportions as over 30 million people are affected by unprecedented flooding in the country. Second, if we're going to avoid the earth hurtling into uncontrollable cascades of climate change-driven disasters, then across the planet, all nations, especially the worst emitters, need to radically and rapidly reduce their emissions, again, principally by stopping burning fossil fuels. A transition to renewable energy, but also to sustainable forms of agriculture is absolutely critical and needs to take place across every sector of every society. Third, in the decades that this dire warning has rung out across the globe, emissions haven't decreased, they have increased. Despite these alarm bells ringing at fever pitch, we see new evidence today in the Emissions Gap Report that government's actions so far simply do not add up to what it is so desperately needed. All of which probably leaves us feeling pretty depressed, but might also leave us curious. What is going on? How can we so clearly know what needs to be done and still not be doing it? There are many answers to that question. They include answers that point to the corrupt, revolving door relationships between fossil fuel companies and governments, to capitalism's absolute reliance on the availability of cheap, 
so-called natural resources to exploit, to the massive global and national inequalities that foster exploitation of the earth and marginalised communities, and to the legacies of colonialism and the destruction of First Nations peoples' relationships with land, just to start with some of the simpler explanations. But the question is also one that we as individuals and communities need to ask ourselves. What gets in the way of all of us being part of making the change or pushing for the changes that need to be made? Even if we believe that those big answers are the correct ones, that the problem is global capitalism or government capture by fossil fuel companies or growing inequalities or the legacies of colonialism, we still need to ask ourselves what stops more people and communities advocating for, demanding and organising to transform our social, political and economic systems. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands. Again, you'd have to be a fool to try and give the answer to that question. But one answer we've come up with takes us back to the role of imaginaries. That is, most people imagine the future in a climate-changed world in ways that get in the way of their being active in bringing about change. And alternative, empowering imaginaries are hard to come by. So let's talk about imaginaries. I've mentioned the term imaginaries a few times by now, and you might be asking yourselves, what does she mean? Is she talking about stories we make up or pictures we paint in our heads? The answer is kind of and kind of not. The imaginary is a bit of a term of art, but it's important to what we're doing in this podcast, so I want to spend a little time explaining it. When we talk about imaginaries, what we have in mind are the implicit or background assumptions that people make about how the world is. These background frames or meaning-shaping narratives are not, for the most part, individual. They're shared. That's why we call them social imaginaries. But imaginary can be a bit of a confusing term. They are imaginary in the sense that they are not an empirical description of the world in itself or the world as it exists apart from us humans in some objective sense. Rather, they are meaning-laden frames we bring to interpret and make sense of the world. But if we take the word imaginary to mean fantastical or just made up or arbitrary and easily changed, they're not imaginary at all. They are very real. Social imaginaries shape how we understand ourselves and others, including what we call nature or the environment. They also shape our expectations, our values, and what we think we ought to do. We always live within imaginaries and they organize our lives, our actions, and our relationships. Their power lies precisely in the fact that they seem to be simple descriptions of reality. They don't show up as anything other than what is just there. They seem natural and they can be deeply dug in and hard to shift. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pretty much all of us in the modern West live within a social imaginary where the world is divided into humans, other animals, plants, and then the non-living world, rivers and mountains and soils and so forth. Most important of all, we humans show up for ourselves as a completely different type of being to everything else. Now you might be thinking, that's not an imaginary, 
That's truth based on science. Science, if we mean by that a way of knowing the world freed from all human meaning, doesn't actually draw a thick line between humans and other animals. On the contrary, for science, humans are animals. And the more we attend to science, the more we discover that it's pretty impossible to separate out the living from the non-living world. But that messy world without clear boundaries is not the world we live in. Just think about the difference between what we believe is right for humans and what we think is right for everyone, or more accurately within this imaginary, everything else. And if we pay attention to the worldviews of other cultures, especially those of First Nations peoples, we see that the boundaries they live in look very different indeed. Humans, other animals, rivers and forests don't necessarily fall in completely different categories. In fact, they may show up as kin. And of course, that makes all the difference to how First Nations peoples live upon the earth. Another place imaginaries show up is in the way people around the world are divided up. We take it for granted that the human world is divided into nations. Guess what? The nation, that apparently natural unit of human organisation, only came into existence a couple of hundred years ago. But think how powerful that imaginary is. When people ask us who we are, it's part of our identity. We go to war for it. And these days, we refuse to cooperate to reduce emissions in the name of national interest. So that's the idea of the imaginary, but what about climate imaginaries? If folks imagine that the world is divided into humans, animals, plants, and the non-living, or that the human world is divided into nations, how do they imagine a climate-changed future? Seems to us that there are three imaginaries that dominate the scene at the moment. We'll be calling them the business as usual imaginary, the techno-fix imaginary, and the apocalypse or doom imaginary. You already saw versions of those three imaginaries in the conversations with my daughter, who is pretty doomy, with my friend, whose son is sure of the techno-fix, and with the property developer, who's living with great confidence in the business-as-usual imaginary. To help me unpack these imaginaries, my fellow researchers in the Grounded Imaginaries project, Adya, David and Pragnia, will delve deeper into them. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. The treasurer you. knows the rules. The business-as-usual imaginary is just what the name implies. Climate change is no big deal. It's natural for the Earth's climate to change like it has done in the past. Life will pretty much continue as it is. No need for any real change, certainly not societal or economic transformation. Stop stressing the kids. The Technofix imaginary is one that has a lot of traction now. And this one says, yes, there's a real problem. And yes, we need to deal with greenhouse gas emissions to address climate change. But this kind of thinking goes human beings always come up with technical solutions, and they will again. Modernity is all about progress, and we can invent our way out of this crisis. Look at what the experts and the billionaires are doing. Some of this faith is in technology that doesn't work, like carbon capture and storage or clean coal. 
Some is in quite dangerous technologies, such as geoengineering. And some is in genuinely promising tech, like green hydrogen. But the answer is always more technology that is just over the horizon. We recognize that energy demand is growing and the world needs lower carbon solutions to keep up. At Chevron, we're working to find new ways forward through investments and partnerships in innovative solutions like renewable natural gas from cow waste, hydrogen-fueled transportation, and carbon capture. There's a slightly different version of the TechnoFix, which we also think is important, and we call it the TheoFix. Here, instead of technology, it's God or some transcendent force who's going to save us. Now, technology and God are obviously very different, but they occupy the same kind of position in the two versions. Saviors from above will fix everything. And in a certain way, they come together in an era where the cult of celebrity mentality has elevated tech billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos to a deity-like level. So techno and theofix imaginaries are very real and based in faith. But we have to go to space, and we have to go to space to save Earth. That's why this work is so important, and we don't have forever to do it. We've now gotten so big as a civilization on Earth that we kind of have to hurry. And so I believe that, um, that, you know, that, that really in a kind of a long time frame, the most important work I'm doing is, is Blue Origin and pushing forward to get humanity established in the solar system. Blight, wheat seven years ago, okra this year. Now there's just corn. And we're growing more than we ever have. Well, with like the uh, potatoes in Ireland and the wheat in the Dust Bowl, the corn will die soon. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. The apocalypse or doom imaginary flips to the other side of business as usual. Not only will everything change, but everything will die or be destroyed. The end of civilization and the end of the beauty of the earth. There's no point doing anything. It's all too late. Each day is more gray than the one before. It is cold and growing colder as the world slowly dies. No animals have survived, and all the crops are long gone. Soon all the trees in the world will fall. Evacuate everyone south of that line. What about the people in the north? I'm afraid it's too late for them. If they go outside, a storm will kill them. At this point, their best chance is to stay inside and try to ride it out, pray. We may not notice it, but these three imaginaries circulate around us, not only in the conversations we have, but in popular culture. Once you're aware of them, you will also see that they infuse the statements of political representatives and the policies they advocate. And perhaps most importantly, 
you can begin to discern how individuals and corporations with a strong interest in protecting the status quo, like fossil fuel companies, promote the imaginaries that discourage social movements who challenge their profits and privileges. For 30-odd years, denial and business as usual worked pretty well for them. But now, in the face of incontrovertible evidence, they've turned to the other two imaginaries. Nowadays, they're at work promoting the effectiveness of technological solutions or more insidiously, sponsoring narratives of doom. Both equally effective ways of stalling the type of real actions that will threaten their business interests. So what's the alternative? These three imaginaries, business as usual, techno or theofix, and apocalypse or doom, seem completely different on their surface. And of course they are. But what they have in common is that they all leave people who live within them uninspired to act. If there is no problem, or if there is, but someone else is surely going to fix it, or if it's all too late, what's the point of doing anything? We need other imaginaries. Imaginaries that are realistic about the impacts that climate change will have, but where humans, acting with each other and with the Earth, can make a difference to how the future unfolds. Imaginaries that combine realism and possibility. Imaginaries where people are not put to sleep by false hopes or technological promises. Futures where young people are not sent to despair and hopelessness by a predetermined apocalyptic future. But how do those imaginaries get created and how do they get sustained? For that, we need to look to people and communities who are already transforming their realities and so transforming their futures. These alternative imaginaries are created and realised and tested from the ground up of their actions and so we call them grounded imaginaries. Over the next five episodes, we'll journey across India and into Australia. In the next episode, we start on the southeast coast of India in the Tamil Nadu region. There, we visit a living laboratory of human evolution a place called Auroville. We'll learn from their community about the power of integral yoga and integral ecology to deepen people's understanding of their place and belonging within larger ecological worlds. Next, moving to northern India, we gain altitude as we venture through the foothills of the Himalayas up to the mid-elevations of Uttarakhand. People here are facing the twin devastations of altered, extreme seasonality and forms of so-called development that are overwhelming traditional lifestyles. Yet in the face of these rapid changes, two villages in this region are experimenting with regenerative farming practices that are also creating leadership opportunities for women in the community. Through their experiences, we'll learn how climate crises and people's survival are deeply entwined. Flying across the Indian Ocean to Australia, will arrive in the small town of Maruya on the southern coast of New South Wales, Eastern Australia. 
we'll discover how a not-for-profit group called SAGE formed and about their dream to develop a strong community-based food system. We'll also follow them through the fires and floods and hear how these climactic disasters force them to reevaluate their relationship to the land. But these inspiring grounded imaginaries don't come without their challenges, as we'll learn from communities of Ladakh. Being a cold desert even higher up in the Himalayas, the Ladakhi landscape is rugged and harsh for people and nature alike. Their survival is under threat because of untimely glacial melts, altered river systems and mismanaged interventions by local governing bodies. We'll discover how this ecosystem has been altered over the last two decades and what its youth are doing today to mitigate their intensifying water crises. We'll conclude the series in Perambakam, a community of resettlement sites in the southern Indian city of Chennai, one of the cities in South Asia most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. With a growing homeless population, how is this community building an alternative future in a world marked by frequent flooding, sea level rise and life-threatening humidity? Imagining a different future is particularly difficult here, but even then, community members are envisioning ways to transform sites of exclusion into livable spaces. In these next five episodes, people from these communities will be sharing how those actions are growing new imaginaries for a climate change world. We hope you will come with us on our journey. And as we travel, we invite you to imagine how your community can also create imaginaries for a livable future in a climate change world. This episode was produced by the Grounded Imaginaries Research Project, funded by the V. Khan Rasmussen Foundation. The project partners are the Sydney Environment Institute, the Social Entrepreneurship Association, Oroville, and India and Bharat together. To stay on this journey with us, follow the project on Instagram at grounded underscore imaginaries and tell us what questions and ideas are alive for you. Help us share this podcast series far and wide to inspire communities in all pockets of the world facing the reality of climate change and allowing us, through our collective actions, to know that alternative futures are possible.